Hi, everyone. I wanted to remind you of a must read. This is a book that you have to have on your bookshelf. It is called The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. He is able to help you make important decisions, give you some guidance on which path to take, and you get to learn how he tapped into the wisdom and power of the unseen worlds for guidance and inspiration. I had the opportunity to interview him, and he was a lovely guest on the Path 11 podcast, episode 343. Check it out. Listen to the podcast. Go buy the book. Again, it's The Necktie and the Jaguar by Carl Greer. To find out more information, go to his website, carlgreer.com. That's spelled C-A-R-L-G-R-E-E-R.com. Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. I am excited to bring our guest back today, who has been no stranger to the show, and I am welcoming back Teal Swan, also known as the Spiritual Catalyst. Um, If you would like to listen to some of the archive shows that we have of her, she was actually one of the first episodes that we did, episode number six, and episode number 73, we brought her back to talk about one of her books, The Completion Process. Now, if you're not familiar with Teal's work, she has a huge fan base, she really rose to to fame through her YouTube Ask Teal series, which now has over 400,000 subscribers and 50 million views. She also has over 250,000 followers on Facebook and over 56,000 on Instagram. She was born in Santa Fe, New New Mexico, with a range of extrasensory abilities, including clairvoyance, clairsentience, and clairaudience. She is also a survivor of severe childhood abuse, and today she uses her extrasensory gifts as well as her own harrowing life experience to inspire millions of people towards authenticity, freedom, and joy. She is also the best-selling author of three books, The Sculptor in the Sky, Shadows Before Dawn, and The Completion Process. And she just came out with another book titled The Anatomy of Loneliness. So, Teal, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be here back. Yes. So I have to say, after um, having the opportunity to be able to interview a few times and seeing some um, comments from our listeners, you definitely have a huge fan base. And I, But I also feel like people either really, really love you or they're really mm. out to get you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I'm polarizing for sure. Yes. You know, and so I also just wanted to just give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about that if you wanted to before we get into into um, talking about your new book because it's been pretty striking for me as you know the producer and um, you know the person that does the interviews to just see some of the hate that comes across and the comments that people will put up um, and it's just so not spiritual right it's like on the exact <laughs> other end of it and I've had a lot of people you know ask me well what do you think of Teal and I you know I basically said I wouldn't have this woman back on my podcast if I didn't believe in the work that she's doing <laughs> period um, so um, I really do enjoy the work and the message that you're putting out. And I do feel that you are doing great service to people and really inspiring people to heal and to come back to love. So I was just curious how you deal with so much contrast in the field and the messages and the books that you're writing and the teachings and all of that stuff that you get um, that maybe isn't so positive. 
Well, it's really hard. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's the hardest part of my career, actually, I think, is the fact that I get so much um, hate, basically. But I'm also getting pretty desensitized. I mean, this has been seven straight years of this and more progressively aggressive forms of hatred. And I'm having to have, I mean, I can't go anywhere without security now. So <laughs> it's pretty serious. But that being said, what what really sets me apart from the majority of the people in this business, besides the fact that I come in a package where nobody thinks that the spiritual information can come from, is that I'm not like I'm not doing inspirational speeches. So when you look at, at stuff that's on YouTube and the majority of stuff that's shared on Facebook, what it is is it, it's not vulnerable content. Right. Most people, what they're sharing is you can do it and life can be awesome and look at the world today and you can change it. It's not personal. The stuff that I'm doing these videos on is extremely personal and oftentimes controversial. I'm not the type of spiritual teacher who won't go somewhere based on the fact that it has controversy involved with it. So obviously my views on, on controversial subjects makes me wide open for people who of opposite persuasion, shall I say. <laughs> Yes, I would agree. Well, thank you. Thanks for, um, you know, just speaking to that. And I just wanted to give you a platform to be able to, to do that. So, um, so let's get into the new book that you wrote, The Anatomy of Loneliness. So what, what is it about uh, this loneliness and trying to become, you know, reconnected, kind of coming back to love, looking at how this happens for people and separation? Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Okay. Bye. I was real frustrated most of my life based off of being lonely as hell. I'm no exception to the rule, which tends to be the rule on this planet of loneliness. I mean extreme loneliness in my case, which led to a lot of basically suicide attempts and addictions and things like that. So I was wondering when I was in that position like most people do in a state of loneliness, why is it that I am, seem to be the only person who can't connect with other people? And that's what we tell ourselves when we're lonely, right? We're looking around the grocery store and it seems like everyone has families. We're looking at other people who are hanging out and thinking everyone has friends and we're the only one who can't. So what was really amazing, but also terrifying when I got into this business that I'm in today is that I started traveling around the world. So I was visiting different cultures, different subsets of people, different continents, and it did not matter where I went. didn't matter what age group I was dealing with, what culture I was dealing with. Everybody that I talked to was describing the sensation of loneliness and being cut off from other people. And so, I mean, it was good for me because I realized I'm not the only one, but it was also negative in that I realized that this is like a social epidemic today. And it has further implications other than just the fact that most of us feel lonely. This sense of isolation that keeps permeating through human society is actually the root of all crime. It's the root of all addiction. So when we're looking at some of the biggest social problems that we're looking at on the planet today, the root has itself in loneliness. So I did what I usually do, which is to get super frustrated about an epidemic issue and then decide to take it upon myself to figure out what exactly is going on here and how to solve it. And that was the birth of this book. Right. And you, you actually kind of break it down into three different pillars, the pillar of separation, yes. the pillar of shame, and the pillar of fear. So maybe you can talk about each of those as well. Right. So the first pillar of loneliness is separation. You can think of that as like the central pillar that the other two pillars lean on. So the other two pillars are feeding into separation, but separation is the main pillar of isolation. Now, Separation started far before the emotion of separation. It started before your physical birth as a human. 
it started in the mind of what we call source consciousness or some people are referring to as God. When source consciousness thought the thought I for the very first time, that thought created a kind of cancer where there was no relationship to other that existed. There was no concept of other that existed until that thought. So you could think of, of this great oneness or infinite energy having a crack split straight down the center of it with that thought I. That was the very first time, of course, that source itself felt lonely. Now, most of us never think about the idea of source or what we call God as feeling lonely, but loneliness is central to the self-concept of, of source or God because that thought, what am I, created the sensation of there being nothing to be in relationship to because what we know is that there's nothing except for united consciousness. It's nothing except for source or God. So that was the beginning of that loneliness. But <clears throat> that initial thought acted like a cancer because that thought created a division and a division and a division and a division. It's sort of like if you've ever seen the process of life as it begins, you're starting off with this, you know, the sperm meets the egg, and then all of a sudden there's this intense division process that the egg goes through where it becomes two cells and then four cells and then eight cells. And this is basically what happened within the universe, all the way down to different dimensions, all the way down to different individual items within these dimensions. And now here we are in this uh, time-space reality of separation where we've got a table separate from me, separate from the computer, separate from you, separate from the dog. And we all perceive ourselves to be infinitely cut off from the greater whole. So that's separation. But the one thing we have to understand about separation is that the greatest implication that it has on our lives is, is the fact that we are a fractal of source consciousness. So every one of those cells that divided from the greater whole is a carbon copy of the greater whole, meaning that all of us are a fractal of source or God. Now, what that means is that we've got the very same fragmentation process happening within our own being. And this is the separation that is occurring internally that is the, the, the biggest cause, shall I say, of loneliness. And, and the, other, the other word, too, that um, people might even be more familiar with, too, is when you're talking about the separation, you're also identifying our egos, right? Yeah, yeah. Feeling separate from, from that source consciousness. And... Yeah, ego is nothing but a self-concept. So when I refer to myself as teal, that's an ego. And anything that I identify as me, mine, or I will now be central to that self-concept. So let's say I love horses. Now I've identified with it. If there is any damage done to horses, I will feel negative because it's part of my self-concept. And then that too leads into um, what you were talking about in the pillar of shame too, because when mm. we begin to identify with things, then that can also lead to judgment, either judgment on ourselves, judgment on others. And it's with that identity that comes some more of maybe that disconnect from that self-love. Shame is one of the most misunderstood things on the planet today because people see shame as this negative emotional state that really is unnecessary, but actually it's central to a human. So trying to get rid of shame is the same as trying to get rid of the fight or flight mechanism because shame is actually a biological affective reaction. Kind of like, let's say you go up to a sea anemone and you poke it. It's not going to have to think about um, about moving in a way where it closes itself. It's going to instinctively do that. So shame is actually an instinctual reaction. So it's not something that we can get rid of. It's, the, it's when that winds down to a self-concept or a way that we see ourselves that we start to say that somebody has a shame-based self-concept. So I'm going to explain what the biological affect of shame is 
for you really quickly. The biological affective reaction of shame happens when we perceive ourselves to be pushed away by somebody who we need to have closeness with. What we need as physical humans is closeness first and foremost and above all else. It is the single most important human need. It is a need that even supersedes the need for water and food. So, I mean, and, and here's more proof for that. When somebody loses someone, meaning they lose a sense of connection with somebody, you often see them starve, and, and sometimes they can starve to death, in fact. Mm. So this deterioration in physical health is an indication that, you know, if it was the case that water was more important or food was more important to a physical human, you wouldn't see that as a byproduct of grief. So if connection is the most important thing for a social species, which it is, <laughs> then if I perceive myself to be pushed away by somebody because of a trait within myself, I will instinctively create a triangle internally with myself. So I will now start to gain rapport with the other person by tr trying to push that part that they're disapproving of away from myself. And I can't do that physically because I can't like cut, there's not a part of my body that represents that part of me, especially if it's a character trait. So I can't like cut my arm off and be like, well, it's not part of me anymore. So what I can do though, is I can create a split within my own consciousness. And this is what we're doing over and over, like, over again with shame. So shame can really be seen as the mechanism that is behind fragmentation in general within a physical human. And it's our primary coping mechanism to create that fragmentation so that I can develop rapport with my mom. So, for example, I'm going to develop a sense of closeness with my mother if she doesn't like my anger by turning against my own anger. And that is the sensation of shame that arises within our body is whenever we push a part of ourselves away. And you also give an example, you bring narcissism into this chapter as well of people who mm -hmm. feel shame. Um, can you talk about that? Yeah, narcissism is also one of the most under misunderstood things on the planet because people assume that narcissists really love themselves, but actually everything they're doing in their life is to cover up a self uh, concept of shame. Narcissists come out of dysfunctional households, and dysfunctional households are actually the norm on the planet. They're not the exception. And in a dysfunctional home, it's every man for himself. Basically, every, every member of that household has to fend for their own needs. And the codependent is doing it in very covert ways. They're basically, um, they're dependent in a very unhealthy way on the narcissist and are enabling the dysfunction of the narcissist in the home so as to make the narcissist dependent on them. So it's really about meeting their needs too. So the codependent is just as narcissistic as the quote unquote narcissist. But the narcissist is somebody who grew up in a household in a situation where they couldn't adapt to make the parents approve of them. So it's almost like they couldn't find any strategies for codependency. And as a result, they were pushed away by the family. And what they learned is, I have to fend for myself completely. And so to do that, they go into a narcissistic bubble, meaning it's, it's all about me and my, myself and my needs. Nobody's going to take my best interest at heart. And so I have to basically fight for my best interest against other people. They're trained from day one that life is basically a zero-sum game. And so... And, you know, obviously, when we're rejected to that degree, what is actually in the core of our being is this concept that we are horrible people. But that has to be covered over because we can't live with ourselves with that type of a self-concept. So it has to be covered over by all of these coping mechanisms, which make a person boast, which make a person only consider themselves, which makes a person seem totally self-loving when, in fact, they are the exact opposite of that. 
And what about, you know, I've heard in some of the research of how like narcissism and codependency develop in childhood that usually both there is some sort of trauma that is happening um, in that household. And like you said, dysfunctional households pretty much are the norm. It's it's rare to find someone that has not grown (laughs) up with any trauma uh, whatsoever. But what's your thought also on uh, possibly the child that was overpraised or, you know, could have no mistakes, but really, really built up um, as opposed to feeling very disconnected from the family? and having to go into their own narcissism. There's no such thing. In fact, I love to, they call this the golden child in the family. And I love to call this dynamic out because the golden child is just as rejected actually, but they could strategize. So let me explain how this goes. The golden child, the one who's accepted into the family, who becomes a perfect mirror and who can do no wrong is doing nothing more than fueling that parent's um, self-image. So they were able to sort of like reject, deny, and disown aspects of themselves so as to develop rapport with the parents. So they actually went through the same phase and form of self-rejection, but they were able to adapt. And their pain is that mom and dad never notice. So they can make themselves be the one that succeeds in whatever mom and dad wants them to succeed at. But with the internal knowledge that they've done that to the detriment of, of a part of themselves, they've had to get rid of part of themselves. So because of that down deep, they also know that they're not loved. Gotcha. Now, on, a, on an, over, an overview of all of this from a spiritual understanding, why do you think it is that all of us are souls or the majority of us are, of souls are kind of born into these dysfunctional families that we're dealing with these personality traits of narcissism and codependency and shame and loneliness? Like, how is that evolving our soul for the greater good? And, and why does it seem so hard on earth here? Up until we really graduate into deeper and deeper levels of spiritual understanding, we have a very kindergarten way of looking at God or source, which is what we are actually a projection of. We look at God or source as if it is knowing everything in existence, and we're just kind of catching up. We sort of look at God or source the same way that we do when we're five years old looking at mom or dad. They know everything. That's not the case. So when you progress in your spiritual awareness, one of the most shocking things to realize is that source itself has a subconscious mind. It has what it doesn't know that it doesn't know. And the entire reason for the creation of life is so that source itself could become self-aware. So it projects itself into every different perspective it can possibly come into so as to see itself. And that is the point of life. And so right now we are exploring the shadow of source consciousness. And the shadow source consciousness is every negative thing you could possibly imagine on the planet today. It's not just every negative thing, it's every unknown thing about itself. But let's say that that something within the source is disconnection. That's obviously if all things in existence are part of source, disconnection is part of source. So one thing that we will be experiencing in this time-space reality in the process of self-awareness of source consciousness is disconnection. So we would opt into that type of an experience, or you would see that experience played out because it's part of who we are. And then by becoming conscious of it, we then arrive at a choice point. When a human being or any living being arrives at a choice point, that is actually source consciousness, arriving at a choice point. Kind of like, you know, any, it's the same with us. When we become conscious of something we are subconscious of, we are now at a choice point where we can consciously choose to maintain that way of being or to get out of it. And so right now, many of, of the beings in the universe are incarnating into these dysfunctional households through the understanding that, that that will force them into a choice point in terms of how relationships should go or whether they're going to choose back into oneness or choose singularity, identity, and separation. 
Gotcha. Okay. And uh, before I move on to some other questions, I do want to give you the opportunity to talk about the last uh, pillar, which is the pillar of fear. I can can get myself sidetracked, can you tell? (laughs) That's okay. Um, Fear. The last pillar is fear. And to fear is to push something away from yourself. Fear is the exact opposite of the vibration of love. People usually associate a sensation of positive focus towards love. That's what love is for most people, right? And that's really not what love is. What love is, is to take something as part of yourself. And when you do that, you naturally start to feel positive feelings towards something. But to take something as part of yourself is the opposite than to push something away from yourself. And what I'm doing when I'm fearing something is to push something away from myself. It would benefit people to see these two movements within um, within life as if it is just that. It's just there's only two movements, either away or towards. Away propagates loneliness. Towards propagates a sense of closeness and connection. So when I fear something, I'm actually pushing that thing away. So let's say that I'm terrified of sharks, right? If I'm terrified of sharks, what you're going to see on an energetic level is I'm pushing that thing away from myself. I'm disincluding it as me. I'm seeing it as other as I possibly can. And I'm trying to keep my distance. And how about, can we even talk about the fear of intimacy? Because it comes back to this connection and loneliness. And, and, you know, when I speak to a lot of my clients, and I've personally experienced this myself, just with love and, and intimate relationships, it's, it's the one thing that seems to be very easy to push people away, to bring those walls up, that block. Everybody's so afraid of getting hurt, being vulnerable, uh, opening mm-hmm. their heart, uh, going through sadness and grief again. Um, so I'd like, I'd like to talk about it in even deeper terms of this human connection connection of loving another person, being vulnerable to another human being, and how so many of us are so fearful of love. But as you say, it's like the one thing that that we need, that we want, but we hold it with so many boundaries, so many rules, uh, so many walls and blocks. We, as a species, have a very difficult time, obviously, because we've got these dysfunctional relationships with each other, we have a very hard time seeing love in its pure form. Most of us have not ever experienced that. Most of us have experienced um, being closeness in, with with somebody else, relating to distrust, relating to experiences of pain. So it's understandable why we would feel traumatized. That's going to happen for any species. I mean, it's basic programming. If you experience something negative with, with a bunny rabbit, now you're going to look at bunny rabbits differently. So obviously all of us have come into this kind of trauma, and so we have this type of relationship, and it's all about rehabilitating that relationship that we have with the concept of being in connection in general. Um, one of the things that, that I see causing this issue of intimacy and fear of intimacy, I, I should say the most, is that we don't learn that we can be in relationship and have ourselves at the same time. So because in a dysfunctional household, we honestly can't. I mean, it's what I always said earlier. You can only develop closeness with somebody if you're fueling their self-esteem to such a degree that you're not rejected in any way. And to do that, you have to reject parts of yourself. And so the primary thing fueling fear of intimacy is the, the fact that we feel like in connection with somebody, we're going to lose parts of ourselves or that if we are totally all of ourselves, we're going to lose a person completely. That's our option. So it's either I lose them or I lose myself. And that's the subconscious um, belief that is operating in so many people on the planet today. So we we don't feel like we can be authentic actually around people. That's what this all boils down to. I can't be authentic around another person because when I am authentic around another person, that will lead to consequences. And chief among them being losing a person. So um, are you saying that in order to really be able to experience that type of love and closeness that the individual has to be able to 
keep a part of themselves separate from the person that they're loving so they don't no. feel like they're losing not themselves? at all no not at all in fact that is that's the misconception okay. that's i have to keep a part of myself for myself and i think that's that's total BS. What I am proposing here is that when we are completely clear about ourselves, can we talk about boundaries for a minute? Sure. Okay. Most people don't understand boundaries. And and this is where this whole thing starts because we assume that a boundary has to do with um, pushing somebody away or, or letting them close. That's, that has nothing to do with boundaries. A boundary is nothing more than a differentiation. So I was talking before about ego, right? Mm-hmm. There could be nothing more ego. And ego is not negative, by the way. It doesn't have to be negative. It just tends to come with negative side effects if you're not aware of it. But an ego is a self-concept. A boundary is also just a self-concept. It's what defines me from everything else in my environment. So this is my favorite thing to do to explain boundaries. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Mint chocolate chip. Mine is coffee. That's a boundary. It's literally that simple. So a boundary is just what uniquely defines me. It's my feelings, my needs, my preferences, my desires. It's whatever uniquely defines me. Now, when when we start to become concerned with boundaries and other people is where our personal desires, our personal needs, and our personal truths start to conflict with someone else's. And then we start to think about boundaries as a, as a fence when it really has nothing to do with that. So I'm not suggesting that we withhold a part of ourselves in any way, shape, or form. I'm suggesting the opposite, that you really uniquely define yourself and then put that forth into the center of the relationship as as deeply as you possibly can. Okay, so let me give you some examples and see if we can work through this in what you're talking about. Um, Because I also think, I don't know if you would agree, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about, well, when we set boundaries in relationships, usually it's the root of that is probably because of fear, because we don't want to be taken advantage of, or like you said, it's me, me, me. I don't want to get hurt. (laughs) Um, But if we take a real life example, say, of falling in love with an alcoholic. um, Yep, Okay, so what? Are, eventually there's going to be some rules or some boundaries if the person um, that has fallen in love with the alcoholic is feeling like, okay, you know, how, how much more do I support this quote-unquote behavior or how do I love this person or can I love this person to death or do I need to start setting rules to say, if you continue to drink, then I'm leaving or um, so how, how do we stay connected fully in love, loving this person without boundaries, maybe without rules, um, accepting okay. them for who they are? Like this is where I just get like a little confused of okay. how do we apply this so we don't okay, well, become lonely. Let's get as let's get as deep as we can into this one because I, I mean, it's really important that people understand this. The first thing is is that we may be using those words like it's rules for the self, but actually like almost in the vibration of everything that you just said is this idea that you get to decide something for somebody else, right? So so when most people are thinking about boundaries, they're thinking about, well, this is what you get to do or not do. And, and we got to drop that. We have absolutely no control over that at all. So when we're thinking about boundaries, we've got to bring it way back to ourselves and so much focus on ourselves, actually, that it's super intense. So, for example, I'll look at, at what, what my truth is about the alcoholism. Maybe my truth is I am not going to stay in the house. You know, if this person keeps becoming bad drunk, that's wrong for me. So when they communicate this, it's not going to be you get to stop drinking or else. The communication of that's going to be what's right for me is to not be in a house where somebody is inebriated. So that's where that gets conveyed to the other person. Okay, so you're kind of saying having people uh, reverse that and say, what are the what are the boundaries for 
your personal self and not asking of others, but asking of yourself. And what does that look like for you? Oh yeah, 100%. But I mean, we really get into trouble with boundaries when we think we can control what somebody else does. And we, we set the boundaries against someone. Boundaries should never be set against anything. That's not a boundary. That's a fear. And that's pushing something away from yourself. Right. So like, I'll give you an example with a kid, right? So, you know, my son is nine years old. And one of his favorite things to do when we, when it's bedtime is to, you know, jump around, go crazy, get the dog all wired. And, you know, most moms know what that little pattern is like. So it's, I am not going to be able to, as a mother, tell him what he gets to do or not do. That's not an okay thing for me to do. I don't get to supersede my sense of who he should be over who he's deciding to be. What I get to do is decide about myself. So something that I'll say to assert a boundary is something like, mommy's decided to only read to little boys who are laying in bed. So then he gets to decide. It puts the other person in in a choice point. It's not like a... It's not a manipulation. It's not a con. What it is is it actually offers them the opportunity. They then get to use their free will to either choose based on their own boundaries or sense of self. Either he's going to get in bed because he wants the book or he's going to deliberately choose to keep playing around and not get the book. And if he deliberately chooses to play around and get the book, do you leave and let him put himself to bed? Or just like if you yeah. have think about bedtime with parents and their struggles and the fight and if he wants <laughs> to stay up until two or three o'clock in the morning, that would be his total choice. Yeah, well, for me, yeah, I mean, I, every parent has to really look at themselves and what their own, I guess, idea of parenting is. But myself, like, it was very important for me with Winter to teach him consequences very early on. And consequences are not punishment. It's the idea that anything that you do has an equal and opposite reaction. So what I wanted to, to do with him when he was young was to allow him to make some of these choices, the only limit being if he's really seriously going to hurt himself, where he could see that there was obviously going to be a consequence to anything he chose, positive or negative. So when you start this pattern, by the way, when a kid is very young, the price tag for that learning experience is very small. If you're doing this type of a process with a teenager, they could crash the car and kill themselves. If you're doing this with a four-year-old, they skin their knee. So what I was doing with him was stuff like, let's say in the morning, he doesn't want to put his boots on and it's snowing outside. I'd say something like, well, mommy's boundary is that we got to get in the car at this exact time. So if you're not ready, we're going to go without your shoes. So of course, you know, he tests the boundaries he doesn't want to. And so I'm like, okay, well, you can take your boots in your hand. We're going to get in the car. Now the kid walks in bare feet, you know, for like, four feet through the snow and then from that day forward he decides to put his shoes on but it's not like it's not like what you're imagining it's not this horrible you know crying type of a situation it's the thing where he goes oh that's way too cold gets in the car and is like i'm never doing that again so it's about him learning that there is a consequence to whatever he chooses so then this actually puts a child in the awareness that they're um that they're they basically when they when they choose something right that it's in their hands, the responsibility of whatever it is they line up with. That's so, so critical for kids and also to feel like they're not completely controlled. What I'm watching, actually, what I, I'm so glad this is finally happening now so I can see kind of the byproduct of this type of, of, or this way or style of raising him, is that he has a much closer relationship, actually. He doesn't see me as an oppressor. He's not in a state of rebellion. You know, I was hearing all these discourses when I was first you know, pregnant with my son, I was listening to these these things on parenting, and there was some parenting expert who put forth this idea that if you have a teenager that's rebelling, you've messed up. And I was like, that's really interesting, because it's kind of like a societal expectation that a teenager 
is going to rebel, and that's part of their process of breaking free of the household. But you know, these experts were like, that's not the case at all. That means that you have set yourself up as basically a jail master, and at that point, they're old enough to be able to come up against you. And and if you actually play this right, where you you bring them into you know a place of personal choice and the consequences therein, and teach them how to have relationships where they can consider your best interests. Um, what you have is basically a, a kid who's entering 11, 12, and 13 years old with this attitude of friendship. They see you more as a guide than they do as an oppressor. And so they actually come to you to ask you what you think that they should be doing. And they make decisions like going to bed on time instead of staying awake based on knowing that the next day is going to be painful for them. It's not about what mom or dad says or doesn't say. Right. And you actually have a portion of this in uh, the new book, too, about parenting and the three the three vital things that parents uh, need to do or have to do. I, I don't have it bookmarked, but I remember reading it. Um, do you want to go over that really quick since we're on the topic of parenting and how that can oh, yeah. play into loneliness? I can't remember exactly what I said in that book, but I, but I think I was talking about the addressing of emotions. Yes, yes. I'm looking there is nothing that. that is more important to parenting than how we deal with our children's emotions, because the emotions are actually the center or the core of our being as humans on the planet. So what we do is we make an enemy of the child's emotions. We turn against them, we ignore the emotions, you know, or we, we dismiss the emotions. And so a child is basically disabled by us from day one. And so I think the example that I that I brought forth was, you know, a kid who doesn't want to go to school and how a parent would accurately emotionally coach a child through that type of emotional experience. But the thing to remember about, about emotions is that the first thing you have to do with them is validate them. You've got to see a person's emotions, regardless of how old they are, but let's start with children. You've got to see your child's emotions as if every single emotion is valid. So let's walk you through a scenario where a, a child is Let's say they're five years old and they go to their first birthday party. I like this example because it's just, you know, so many parents have had this, this experience. You take a kid to a birthday party. That birthday party, they have to see another kid getting all the presents. That's difficult for them. They can't, they don't have the rational mind to sort of talk their way out of not feeling jealous in that particular scenario. Now, as parents, what we usually do is we turn against that jealousy. We tell them why they shouldn't be feeling jealous and why it's not okay to feel that way. And by doing so, we put them in a lose-lose scenario because they can't get rid of the feeling and yet they're being told by us that it shouldn't be happening. So they have to deny that a part of themselves even exists and there's no opportunity for resolve based on the fact that we've turned against that emotion. So what we need to be doing is to validate the emotion first and foremost. So let's say that we're in that situation. You go to the kid and you say, you know what, it makes total sense to me if everybody's getting presents, why it would be so hard for you to see that and why you'd be feeling this, this level of envy. See, I'm starting to develop their self-awareness even by using that word. So you let it, once you validate them, you let the kids sit in that for a little bit and you help them sort of be with that painful emotion for a little bit. It's to teach them that when they feel the emotion, they are actually bigger than their emotion. Their emotion isn't bigger than them. And and what you'll see is the kid will sort of settle because when you validate an emotion, the emotion decreases. And when they start to, to settle a little bit, they it'll you'll see them looking to you for cues for how to resolve the issue. And it's only at that point that you start to propose different ideas or ways of looking at the situation that don't make them wrong for having the emotion, but ways of looking at things which alter the emotional reflection that they're starting to receive through their body. So things like, you know, it's really important when we're at birthdays to focus completely on whosever birthday it is. So we do you remember that you had a birthday? And when, when you had a birthday, we did that with you. Do you remember that? You know, speaking to them in that type of way. So you start to get them to think. And when they, when they increase their 
capacity for these types of mental concepts, which are outside of their current perceptual reality, the emotion that is going on totally shifts and they understand cognitive reframing by the time they're about eight years old, they can use cognitive reframing. It's pretty scary to watch a kid who's been raised in this way. They don't make an enemy of how they feel. And so they have access to their internal guidance system. Now, if I'm going to talk to a parent about the most important thing when it comes to parenting, it's keeping a child in touch with their own internal guidance system. Never turn a kid against their own emotion. Because their emotion, every person's emotion, has a very important message that is underneath that, that emotion that the being is trying to share. So it's almost like every emotion is trying to convey a, an aspect of personal truth. So if you teach a person to see each of these emotions as valid, they now have access to the personal truth that that emotion is trying to convey. And that is a child who does not need a parent to tell them which direction to go in life. They are the person who can follow the North Star. And that's ultimately, as parents, what I think the majority of us want, if we're totally honest. It doesn't work for us to tell them what we think they should be doing. I mean, when has that ever gone good, you know? What we really want is a person who can who can consult their own internal guidance system so that at 16, 17, and 18, when they're out at a, you know, a party after hours and they've got a drunk friend who says, get in the car, let's drive, that's the kid who says no instead of yes. And can you um, take it a step further to uh, let our listeners know how raising a child like that, uh, they would be less prone to maybe feeling this disconnect or this loneliness? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, when we teach a child to disconnect from any part of themselves, be it an emotion or whatever it is, we are creating that internal fragmentation within this, within themselves. So, so let's look at it this way. If I learn, because my parents turn against my anger, that my anger is not okay and I have to push that part of myself away, the anger is still an aspect of me. It's almost like you look at a whole pie, we're trying to cut pieces of the pie away from ourselves in order to only keep the part of the pie that people will accept us for. But that part that I have pushed away is still a part of me. Now, there's this saying that you can't hit something without your hand being hit too. And this is how it works with separation as well. If I push something away from myself, I can't do that without simultaneously pushing myself away at the very same time. And what what do we know about isolating somebody or pushing them away? It's an intensely isolating and therefore lonely experience. So if I'm pushing parts of myself away in that way, I am actually the one that registers the physical sensation of aloneness. So we're causing that disconnect in our children. And by, by virtue of doing that, not only do we condemn them to feeling that, <clears throat> that internal loneliness, it's a byproduct of fragmentation. Also, we're making it so that they interact with the world in an authentic way. This is my primary concern. When we are inauthentic, and most of us are, we're just playing a role that we think will get us received. I, you know, it really worries me when I see kids that are too good. If you've got a kid that's too good, you've got an inauthentic kid. So when, when a, a child learns that, they learn to adapt so that these behaviors make mom like me and these behaviors don't like, make mom like me. They're actually playing a character, which is the kid that we want. That's what they're doing. And so they're keeping a whole section of themselves separate from their relationship with us. It's, it's no different than an actor playing a character in a movie. And what people are actually in relationship with is the character. So it's obvious if you look at it like that. Um, let's think of a female. Let's think Angelina Jolie. Angelina Jolie is playing a role when she is the Tomb Raider. 
Now, if we get into a relationship, if I get into a relationship with Angelina Jolie and what I'm actually in a relationship with is the Tomb Raider and that's what I expect, you can bet that when she's living her normal life in Los Angeles and she's afraid sometimes, I'm going to suddenly be in disapproval of her. And more than that, because I'm in a relationship with Tomb Raider, you can bet that Angelina Jolie is going to feel super freaking lonely because I'm in a relationship with a mask. There's always something in between her and me. And this is what most of us are doing in our relationships. And it's what we're teaching our children to do. So anytime we expect them to be and we socialize them in a way where they become completely compliant, we are condemning them to be completely isolated in their adult lives because they're learning that inauthenticity is the way to have relationships. Now, if we have some parents that are listening here and they're thinking about their child and they're saying, oh my gosh, maybe my child isn't being authentic or they are being like these perfect children, how do we begin to um, bring ourselves, bring our children back to connection? You got to recognize the emotions. I'm telling you, the emotions is the way to go there. So let's say you've got a kid that's almost too perfect, right? You, If you pay close attention to this person, and this is what we really fail to do as parents and really need to start doing, is to pay attention to the way that they feel. So we need to feel into them, see into them, really listen to them so as to completely understand this child. What you'll notice with these kids that are quote-unquote perfect children is that you will be able to see flashes of emotion, but they have already learned how to turn against them and disown and deny these emotions, and we just reverse the process by drawing attention back to them. And we, we need to, as parents, develop the capacity to also apologize for places that we've made mistakes. It is perfectly fine at any point in your child's life to walk up and say, you know what, I thought that this was the way to do things, but I'm realizing it's not the way to do things, and I'm sorry that I taught you that. And I realize that it's going to be hard for you to just change overnight, you know, what I already told you, but people are fallible, you know. Um, So let's say that you see one of these flashes of emotions come across these two good children. What you want to do is draw attention to them. Well, I noticed that sensation. You want to talk to me about how you feel? I promise there's not going to be any consequences, but then you actually have to follow that up. There's no consequences, right? Also, we can share with them our emotions in in a very raw and vulnerable and authentic way. We don't need to act as if we feel good in all scenarios. One of the most damaging things you can do in a divorce, for example, is to pretend like nothing is happening. And most parents are trying to preserve their children's sense of happiness this way, but it actually destroys their capacity to have relationships in the future because they're not idiots. Um, you know, they're seeing these emotional states, but it, but it doesn't. None of it is making sense because the parents not being open with the child in terms of how they themselves feel. It's okay, you know, for for me to go up to my son in the morning and be like, "Yeah, mommy's really super tired today because of X, Y, Z." You know, to be to have this sort of emotional sharing, and so we, we just have to reverse the process with our children if we've done the opposite in the beginning by saying. I noticed that you. I noticed that you feel that way because right then you know, your body language kind of moved in a way that made me feel like you didn't really, you know, that thing that you said yes to, you may not really have wanted to say yes to. So it's almost like we got to roll the red carpet out for them to to have the permission to be in a relationship where their emotions are part of the relationship with us. And when we start to develop that, it tunes them back into the truth for them. So when we open up the space for their truth to be actually able to be in the relationship with us, we can reverse that process. Does that make sense? It does. And um, as we kind of begin to wrap up a little bit here, let's say somebody purchases your book and because they want to work on their own loneliness, they're feeling extremely personally disconnected from the world, from others. Um, Maybe they may even be in a relationship but are feeling very alone, or maybe they are single and not in a relationship. Um, If you were to kind of sum up what somebody can get out of this book and how they can find their way back to connection what does your writings here do for somebody who is lonely that picks this book up okay well the book 
itself is written in two parts. The first part is is why we called it the anatomy of loneliness. It's these three central pillars which basically make up the skeleton of what is creating loneliness. And when I wrote those those um, chapters, I didn't just leave it at, let me tell you why everything's messed up and now I'm bouncing out of the room. I wrote it in a way where I then gave information for people about how to topple those pillars. So I'm, I'm trying to create a state within a person, not that they're in conflict with each other, which is the state most of us are in, meaning that there are parts that, parts of us that feel shame and parts of us that are fighting that shame. I wanted to undo the shame entirely. So I have suggestions in the first part of the book for how to topple these pillars of loneliness so that we end up with basically a ground zero. And after ground zero, phase two of the book is how to establish lasting connection with people. So it's almost like the opposite. How do we build these pillars for a lasting connection where we actually have the kind of intimacy that we want? So there's more than, more than you know, I mean, there's several practices that I put forth to try that are practical applications of this and several suggestions that I give for how to do the opposite of what we saw in the first phase of the book. So, I mean, I can promise you if you purchase this book, it's not the kind of thing where you're just going to be getting a whole lot of information with no practical application. I hate those kind of books. So, <laughs> great. And and where can people uh, purchase this? The best place to purchase this is at my website. It's tealswan my name dot com, and we have a special offer for people that's going on right now, which is that if you pre-order The Anatomy of Loneliness and you send a proof of purchase to gifts at tealswan dot com, that you'll get an instantaneous download of my fifth book, which is an audio version that is called The Connection Process, which is a perfect adjunct to this book because the connection process is three highly esoteric processes for gaining intense intimacy in your relationships. So it goes hand in hand with one another. Great. That, that's that's a great thing you got going on there. And why don't you also um, let people know, because this show is probably going to air a little bit later, um, maybe in November of 2018. So you do have some events coming up um, around the world in the later part of 2018 and in 2019. Can you tell people mm. about that as well? Oh, gosh. Uh, I'm doing European tour, so when when this airs, I'll probably be over in Europe. So if you if people catch this at that time, then if you look at my website tealswan.com, you can look at events, and that will tell you everywhere that I'm coming and where you can see me in person. And for the for 2019, I know that I've got some. Sp- special events at my retreat center. I have a retreat center in Costa Rica where I hold this event that's called the Curveball, which is my personal favorite event because I get people, like a small group of people, I like to limit the field so I can work with people one-on-one more than I usually can in my bigger workshops. And I get to put people through whatever I want them to. That's why I called it the curveball. I don't know what I'm going to teach until I sit in front of the group and I see where everybody is. And then I teach according to that particular vibration. And I send people through all kinds of experiential exercises based on whatever I feel like this group needs to be learning from. Oh, so cool. the best way to, to figure out what I'm doing is if, is looking at my events on tealswan.com because I am like not on top of my own schedule. I'm the kind of person who is so in the flow of my own you know, nutty professor business here in terms of this work that I'm doing that other people deal with the schedule and then tell me when I'm getting on an airplane. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. All right. Well, as always, Teal, wonderful to have you on the podcast. Um, As a guest, we'll probably have you on again in the future when you have some other great things coming up. So thanks so much for joining us today. It would be wonderful. Thank you so much. 
If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time.